0: Good to be back with you all. It's been a a while, probably a year maybe, or more. So I bring you greetings from Xenia, Ohio, and from Washington, D.C., where we just finished the whole semester up there. Fun, fun, fun. Um, Our central text for today will be from Exodus chapter 33. Before I read it, though, let me make a few introductory comments, beginning with a question which I hope will lead us to thinking the right way about this text. Here's the question. Have you ever asked for something and then found out later that you didn't realize what you had asked for? At least fully realized what you had asked for. Think about that question. And now think about this word, glory. The word glory has been very commonly used throughout history. And you've probably heard it used in a lot of different contexts. When you hear hear the word in these different contexts, what do you think it means? For example, the glory of love. That was a 1980s song. For those of you who lived in the 1980s, you remember that. The glory of a sunset or a sunrise. The glory of victory. The glory, a glorious day. Wake up and say, it's a glorious day. Individual glory. The glory of a nation. The glory of power, which we saw a lot of in Washington D.C. this past semester. Now you can think of your own examples. The point is that the word itself can have different meanings in different contexts. If I were to summarize I think what most of us think this usually means in the context in which we're talking about today we would say it's the greatness of something or someone or the goodness of someone or something. That would be the meaning we would tend to think of the beauty of something for example. Some immense satisfaction is another possible definition we might think of more often than the others. Most of us would probably choose the first definition as the most common, that is the, the, the greatness of something or someone, I think. Now that's a guess, I know, it's sort of an assumption, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think we would. The greatness or the goodness of someone or something But I think we might see that in this text we're going to read today, even that definition falls a bit short. we are going to see that. Our text is Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 23, and please give attention as I read the word of God now. Exodus chapter 33, beginning with verse 12, this is the word of God. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I have found favor in your sight. If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said, he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would move in our minds to bring understanding of this word as we have read it and as we will speak of it. And Father, that his work would continue to seal it to our hearts that we might accept it, receive it with gratefulness and with a desire to put it into effect in our lives. And Father, we pray for the work of your Spirit to enable us to do that very thing that we will desire. Because, Father, we know that in our own strength we cannot put into effect what you've called us to do. But we thank you that your Spirit dwells in us, that your Spirit works in us, and we pray that he would continue his work Through this word today, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. At first, you might not think that this passage has any relationship to the new year, and the new year just occurred, you know, last week. Now, there's no necessary reason it should. It could apply all days of the year, all the time, but I do believe it does have some important implications for all believers for the coming year and years to come. We'll see this at least in at least three questions we're going to answer today through this text. And I'll give you the three questions up front, and then we'll get to them in due time. Question number one, who is God? That's a crucial question. And the answer to that question gives us encouragement, exhortation, and hope, not just for this year, but for years to come. Who is God? Secondly, who are we? And think of this question in light of the text we've just read, too. And finally, what is our fundamental goal and purpose in life? Again, in light of Exodus 33, the part of it we've just read. Some context for this text today. And you know the story pretty well, at least most people do, I think. The Hebrew people have come out of their slavery in Egypt. They're making their trek to the land promised them by God. Uh, God has given the Ten Commandments and other laws to Moses already. He specifically promised in chapter 33, 23, I mean, that the people would conquer Canaan. And he has confirmed the covenant with his people. So we know this so far. While Moses was on Mount Sinai, the people grew impatient. And we know this story very, very well. Very impatient. And untrusting and decided to revert to their pagan ways in making a golden calf to represent God, they would argue. In reality, they were trying to worship a separate God. Moses returned. He saw what had happened in his absence, and he confronted the people with their, what he calls, great sin. And it was a great sin. It was idolatry. That is a great sin. That's in chapter 32, verse 30. The Lord punished the people and commanded them to leave Sinai for the promised land. Then in chapter 33, verses 7 through 11, we see a bit more about Moses' relationship with God. We're told that, quote, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now that connotes a very, very, very intimate relationship with God, one that most of us... Would not think of having, and it's quite the same way Moses did, though I think we should understand that we can have an intimate relationship with God. It's just not the same way exactly that Moses had it. Bear that in mind. Now we come to our own main text, verses 12 through 23. Moses is speaking with God beginning in verse 12. Let's go back and look at it again. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, stop there for a second and consider the way Moses poses this statement. He seems a bit critical, actually, of God. That's rather dangerous in itself, to go to God and say, well, God, you've said this, but uh, you've not quite delivered on your promise, it seems to me. He's saying to God, in effect, "You tell me you favor you you favor me that you speak with me, but you're not giving me enough information." Hmm. A little bit presumptuous. God was merciful, very merciful here, but Moses seems to me to be a little bit impertinent. Now, uh, you might read it differently, but I tend to read it that way, and I think it's pretty evident that Moses, at least at the beginning here, is that way. But in verse thirteen, Moses adopts a more pleading tone. He changes his tone just a bit, and I think that's important. Verse 13, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. A little bit more pleading. God, yes, 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 you've you've said we're your people, you've said I found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I might understand how to find favor in your sight precisely. And remember, this is for people. Please don't forget that, God. Still pretty bold, but nevertheless, less impertinent for sure. God responds in verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Well, there it is right there. God reiterates his promise. My presence will go with you. I will give you rest. But then in verse Verses 15 and 16, Moses gets to the heart of the matter for him, which, of of course, God knows already. Look at verses 15 and 16. And he said to him, and this is Moses, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Well, yes, that is the whole point. Without God, there would be no real difference at all between the people of Israel and the people around them, the Israelites and the people around them. In relation to what? Their holiness, their set-apartness, their difference morally and ethically is the ideal here. Not just in their, the way they worship God, not just in the commandments, the sacrificial commands, not just there, but in their actual holiness, and righteousness compared to the people around them, set apart in that way, their public and private affairs. Now, I suppose in this back and forth between God and Moses, you can see the intimacy of their relationship, as well as a bit of the human frailty of Moses and the mercy of God. But it is there. You can see this intimacy coming out here. But Moses isn't quite finished yet, as we'll see in verses 17 through 23. For Moses gets very bold, Let's look at verse 17 first. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Well, once again, God has to reiterate his promise to to, to Moses. You have found favor in my sight. I will do for you what I promised. I do know you by name. We do have an intimate relationship. Moses, it's almost... God is not, but it's almost as if God is getting a little exasperated with Moses. Look, I keep promising you and telling you that I promised you, and I'm going to do it. Moses, why are you continuing this line of reasoning? But then Moses goes to the very heart of the whole text today. He makes the most bold request one could make of God, I think. We might even say it was a foolish and dangerous request, but he does it anyway. Here's what he says in verse... 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Well, now, at first sight, that seems like a pretty innocuous text, verse. I mean, show me your glory. What does that mean? Well, just show me something about you, God. No, it's much more than that. Moses wanted to see God as he was, in his essence. That's what he asked for. And that can be a very dangerous thing. So now exactly we have a a, a definition here. What exactly does it mean by glory here? What is it Moses wanted to see in God or about God here in this request? Well, it's something belonging uniquely to God. We know that. And how do we know that? Look back at Exodus 24, verses 16 through 18. Just turn back a few chapters. Exodus 24, verses 16 through 18. Let me give you the context, beginning with verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt in Mount Sinai, or on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. This is something that belongs to deity, not to humans. It's uniquely God's. The cloud covered it because if you saw God as he was in his essence, you would die. He's going to tell us that in a few verses. In verse 19, if you come back to the text we're in now, verse chapter 33, if you come back to verse 19, God responds to Moses' request. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. God responds in an interesting way to Moses' request. He first says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So we know something else about God's glory. It's goodness. It's pure goodness. That's one aspect of it. Not the only attribute of it, but we know one thing about it. It's pure goodness. If you think about goodness and relative goodness, we fall far short of understanding what goodness really is today. We compare goodness to other people. We say, this is a good person. This is the best person I've ever known in my life. That's good, yes, but that's not true, pure goodness as God is good. We don't really understand what it means to say God is good. But here he says, all my goodness will pass before you. So that's one thing we know about God's glory. It's perfectly, purely good. God is that way. Second in verse 20, God qualifies his first statement. Look at verse 20 now. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. That's a pretty important statement. So there's a difference between seeing God in some fashion and seeing him in all of his glory exactly as he is. Another aspect of what it means to to talk about the term glory here, God's glory. It's not the same as seeing the glory of something here on earth. To see God's glory is to see something very different. So we conclude that we cannot think of God as just any being at all. If you've read C.S. Lewis, I know some of you have. How many have read C.S. Lewis in here? A lot of you have read C.S. Lewis. You may remember this from the Chronicles, uh, somewhere in the Chronicles. I can't remember where. But uh, he said that, and this, by the way, this is for all Lewis's theological shortcomings, and he did have some, by the way. But this is an important statement he got exactly right. You remember Aslan the lion who represented Jesus Christ. And when people were talking about Aslan, they said, oh, he's good, he's good. Yes, he was good, but he was more than that. He said, he's dangerous. Aslan is not just good. He can't be tamed. He's dangerous. Now, he meant that in a good sense. This is, we mean that in a good sense for God. God is good, but he's also one, a being who cannot be tamed. He's not human. He's not like us at all. He's different from us. He's above us. He's far above us, not just quantitatively. He's not just bigger and stronger. He's qualitatively different from us in so many ways. They don't have time to go into, actually. But at the same time, remember, continue to remember, he's showing his goodness, his mercy to Moses. And we see that being manifested here, too. Then in verses 21 to to, to, uh, 23, we see God actually answering Moses' prayer but or his request, but in a different way than Moses intended it. Look at verses 21 through 23. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What's happening here? He's telling Moses, go stand on this rock. When my glory passes by, I'm going to put you in the cleft. That is a, uh, an opening in the rock, uh, kind of a, a little cave-like area in the rock. And you're going to be there. And I'm going to put my hand over that cleft so that you don't see me as I am as I pass by with all my glory. Why? Why? because man can't see God that way in all of his glory and live. But once I pass by, I'll remove my hand, and you can see the back of me, which is not my full glory, but only part of my glory. That's still pretty gracious. Now come back to the question here. How many of you would actually ask something like that of God? Would you let me see your glory? Would you let me see you just as you are? Think about that for a moment, Um, but we learn something about God, about ourselves, and about our life before God as a result of that. This is where the three questions come back into the picture. What do we learn important about God here? We can see clearly God's greatness and majesty, and greatness and majesty implies that he alone is worthy of our worship not just worship here in church on Sunday but worship every day of our lives our entire being is to worship God because he's alone is the one worthy of that he's obviously not man we learn that that's clear and being not man well we should know some things already just from saying that we can also see that God is and I love this term by the way ineffable what is that It means that he is to us unknown except for what he chooses to reveal about himself. Ineffable. There's so much we don't know and won't know about God. That's okay that we don't know those things. He's given us everything we need to know. We should take comfort in that and not seek to know what we shouldn't know. If you know the old saying by John Calvin from the beginning of the Institutes, um, we don't know whether this really happened or not, but the, but Calvin reported it. Said so a uh, young man comes to an old man. He says, uh, "Why did God make hell?" And the old man said, "God made hell for the curious. That is you. You want to know more than you ought to know. And by doing that, in essence, you want to be like God. You want to be God in a certain way. But that's not our right. That's only God's right to be that." So he's ineffable, and that's good. Good for us. We can see also that he is perfectly holy, so much so that a human cannot look upon him as he is in himself. Why? Because he cannot tolerate any sin at all. And to see him would be to taint that. So we can't see God just as he is. We can't be in that presence just as it is. For example, when we enter heaven, We cannot have any taint of sin left. There will be none left because God cannot tolerate that in the presence of his complete glory in heaven. In all that he is, in all of his attributes, he's holy without defect. And holy not just without defect, but in a way that we cannot even conceive completely about. The glory of God should elicit worship. Turn to Isaiah 6 for a moment, and you can see this at work again. Uh, it's not that it doesn't appear throughout Scripture. It does frequently. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. <clears throat> In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Interesting. Once again, we see the same situation almost as Moses encountered here. This time, the picture is in heaven with God sitting on his throne. But notice the room is filled with smoke. That's good. That means that Isaiah cannot see God exactly as he is in his essence. Because remember, no man can see God's glory completely and live. And he realized that. he thought he'd, he thought he'd seen more than he should have seen as it is. He said, I, I, uh, "A man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." That's the idea that we have about God's glory in heaven, let alone God's glory passing before Moses in the cleft of the rock. And, God sets the terms of the relationship. That's the final thing we learn about God here. He sets the terms of the relationship between us and Him. We don't set those terms. What do we learn about man in this text? Well, we of course learn that man is not God. If God is not man, man is not God. That's very true. When we speak of God's glory, we can say only... We can only compare human beings very weakly to God's to God himself and God's glory we can say humans are this good or that good or compared to God God's perfections we've reached a certain level we've attained a certain level of sanctification or ethical well-being and so forth but that's not enough to be God we're not God we can never hope to be God we weren't We were never created as God. We were created by God and for him. If we look at Isaiah 6, we see that. Again, think about what I just read in Isaiah 6. We see all this in our own text when God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock as he passes by so Moses wouldn't instantly die. Because again, Moses is a sinner. He can't look upon God in his perfection and live. Now, I could argue that man has a certain glory, and I will. Man does have a certain glory, but what does it mean for man? Turn to Genesis chapter 1 for a moment, verse 26. This text is well known to all of us. Genesis chapter 1, 26, and I'll read a couple of those verses. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So one thing we know, man was created in the image of God. That means in some way we're like God. Some way, but in what way? Yes, we could argue we're creative, like God, in a certain way, sense, but not like God in another sense. God makes things out of nothing. We can't. We're rational. Most of us. Most of the time. um, But not as rational as God would be. We have other attributes too, but not like God's. We're not God. And this text should show us that. We're simply not God. Also, look at Psalm 8. Another text that would Help us get some perspective here on our own glory, not inconsiderable, but not God. Again, Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 8. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So right away, the psalmist first says, God, your name is majestic in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Good. He's acknowledged God for who he is. That's important to do right up front. Then, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you should be mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So he then follows that by saying, yes, and your creation is also good and it shows your glory. So there's a certain glory for the creation too, even. A certain glory. But, let's look at verses uh, 5 and onward. Yet if you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. There it is. You've made man in a certain sense with a certain glory, but not like God's. He says you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. True, that's our glory. Image of God, we've been given dominion, a little lower than the angels, heavenly beings, but we are not God. We have a glory, yes. And then he finishes that psalm by capping off with what he should have, what he said at the beginning: "O Lord our God, how majestic is Your name in all the earth." So he finishes by acknowledging. No matter what you've made man like, no matter what he is in his own glory, he doesn't have the same glory as God has. And we can all say that. Our final truth to be learned from this text is the relation of God to his people. It's a little presumptuous to ask to see the glory of God, I think. But thankfully, God responded in keeping with his own nature, from which his promises have derived, in fact. He allowed Moses to see his glory in veiled form. That's what's important here, in veiled form, and did not rebuke him for wanting that. Notice, at no time did God say, Moses, why are you asking this stupid question? Making this dumb request? No. He said, okay, I'm going to show you my glory. But not the glory you expected. Not my full, unaltered, complete, full glory. I'm not going to show you that. He did not rebuke him for wanting that, though he certainly made it clear that no human could see God in his full glory. Now, we could question Moses' motives on this. For a moment, I want you to think about this with me. Why did Moses ask this question? Maybe he wasn't sure about who this God was. He wanted some proof. It's possible. Or did he want some assurance that God really was with him? Maybe. Maybe. Did he want some assurance of God's power? Maybe. Was he skeptical of what he had heard and seen from this God and about this God? Well, possibly. These would all be very typical human responses. Certainly. But we often, and we often don't trust God. So that's, all these are very possible motivations. But here's one to add to this. Could Moses have had a legitimate desire to see God's glory? Is it possible that there's a legitimate desire to say to God, show me your glory? Understanding, of course, what we're asking for. And this is the problem that Moses had, I think. He didn't really know what he was asking for. We should know what we're asking for, but is it wrong to ask to see the glory of God in a certain sense? He might well have wanted to somehow participate in God's glory, which is interesting. That's not a wrong desire in itself because we do get to participate in God's glory. How? Through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He dwells in us. He works in us. He enables us. That's a work of God that manifests his glory in us, his own people who belong to him. Despite the impossibility and the danger of seeing God as he is in his own completeness, We ought to desire to partake of the glory of God in certain ways. In fact, we do so as we are filled and guided and enabled by that Holy Spirit that he's given us. We partake of certain attributes of God to a certain extent as he chooses to give them to us, a certain degree of his holiness in us. We've also seen God's glory in a different way than Moses saw it, yes, certainly a different way, but... I could argue, a better way in a certain sense. God's with us all the time in his glory to a certain extent. All the time. Not just one time when you go, when you're in this situation in the wilderness and you say, God, show me your glory. Passes before him, that's it. No, this is continuous in the life of the Christian when we participate in God's glory through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now look, at me with, look, at, look with me at, uh, at John chapter the Gospel of John chapter 1. We'll see a little bit more about this as we finish this text. John chapter 1. This would have been appropriate for Christmas too, obviously. Beginning with verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, be, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Stop there for just a second. What have we seen in Christ himself? The glory of God. In Christ himself we have seen the glory of God. That was in history. But Christ died and Christ rose and Christ lives and Christ sent his Holy Spirit. So we see the glory of God in Christ himself. We see the glory of God in his Spirit living in us and working in us. But let me go on and read some more about that. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The fullness of whom? Christ. Fullness means the completeness of God himself through Christ. From that, we receive grace after grace after grace after grace after grace in our lives, through the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ working in us. For the law was given through Moses, yes. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Notice a sort of a veiled analogy back to Exodus chapter 33. No one has ever seen God. That's true. In his full essence, complete essence. The only God who is at the Father's side He has made him known. Notice there it is. Jesus Christ shows us God's glory in a certain respect. And we get to partake and participate in that glory in our lives. Now, I'll go back to that question again. Is it bad to ask to see the glory of God? No, not in the proper sense. We should desire strongly to see that glory. Any way we can that's legitimate We can and do experience God's glory in a partial way. We should eagerly and intensely and earnestly desire that glory in us, but in the proper way. God's Spirit working in our lives through 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 His Word, the hearing, the preaching, the reading of His Word, together with that Spirit working in us. And we do actually see God in that way, but not literally as Moses saw Him. Well, Let me finish up with these final points. God's glory is very much analogous to a consuming fire. I'd like you to turn from our last reference today to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. I want you to see the analogy between Hebrews chapter 12 and this text in Exodus today. Look at the last part of chapter 12, beginning about, well, we'll start with um, verse 18. Now, this is, the writer of Hebrews is speaking to these people who are Christians who are tempted to turn back to their old ways, to their, Judea, their religion of Judaism, because they're, they, they feel the pressure of, of persecution or, or imminent persecution. Now, here's what He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg and no further messages be spoken to them. There's the glory of God that, you're, that he's speaking of here, shrouded in the smoke on Mount Sinai. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion represents Christ. Mount Zion and freedom, by the way, spiritual freedom. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, all Christians who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and finally, and to Jesus. You see? The glory of God looks different today than it did to them and we don't need to fear that. In a proper sense, yes. Yes, reverence for that God. We don't have to fear like the people of Israel did though. The mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus Christ solved our sin problem by dying on the cross and raising from the dead. He lives now for us. And now we don't go to God in fear and trembling, we go to God with a desire to see his glory properly revealed to us. And we long for that. Now, just a couple of conclusions. It's rather a dangerous thing to request to see the glory of God as it's defined in Exodus 33. I don't advise that for any of us here. But, And by the way, how many of us would be brave enough or foolish enough to ask a question like that of God? God, would you show me your glory? Like Moses meant it? No, I don't think so. But if we think about it a little more, as I hope we have this morning, we should sincerely and earnestly and intensely desire to see that glory as he gives it to us, as he manifests it to us in the ways that the Bible itself gives it to us. We should seek that glory. We should seek that experience of the glory of God as it comes to us through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, working with those scriptures in our lives and that work in our lives, that actual work of God in our lives, enabling us to participate in his own glory. God's been gracious enough to reveal some of it and perhaps that was what was intended as the picture for us here in Exodus 33. No, you can't see glory God exactly as he is in his essence. But you know what? You can experience God in a certain sense, his glory, now. Here and now. Because you're a believer. Because you know God. And he knows you. And yes, you are his friend now. And yes, he's filled you with with his spirit. He dwells in you. And yes, in that way you experience the, the glory of God. So let's take... Not, um, not see this text as, as just a, a story about God's ineffableness, his the glory that can't be seen, his, his, his essence, that we don't, we don't see. And we don't worry about that. But we know who he is through his word. And we know how to live the way he wants us to live through his spirit working with that word. And we are able to do it through the spirit working in our lives to enable us to do it. So yes, we should look for that glory and be thankful. Let's pray.